Hey, it's Ben here. And in addition to this podcast, I also teach Microsoft Excel online. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access to the course. Stay tuned after the episode for a little bit more information as to why it's so important to improve your Excel skills and unlock your inner Excel ninja. Thanks. Even though this month is quickly wrapping up, October is ADHD Awareness Month. Now you might be asking, why do we need to raise awareness about ADHD? I'm going to paraphrase some lovely tidbits from Ari on Instagram, who can be found as the underscore ADHD underscore entrepreneur. Throughout the media and across the internet, misinformation and misunderstanding of ADHD runs wild. Some common misconceptions about ADHD include that ADHD people are simply lazy, that only children, especially young hyperactive males, have ADHD, even plenty of people who think that it does not exist or was invented by Big Pharma to make money. The problem with the stigma is that it affects how ADHD is perceived by others or even how those with ADHD see themselves. This judgment can have other effects including carrying guilt and shame, actively avoiding medication, being missed for diagnosis, not getting the right treatment, discrimination from employers or education, and even just the impact to emotional well-being. Now I want to provide a trigger warning for the next piece of info as it relates to suicide. Feel free to avoid if this subject is too difficult for you. Those with ADHD are five times more likely to attempt suicide, with that number being even higher for women. ADHD Awareness Month is important because it encourages the sharing of correct and potentially life-saving information. I hope my guests this month, who mostly are in some way affected with or helping others with ADHD, can give a glimpse into what it's like to live with ADHD. For these specific episodes with Dave O'Dwyer, I also wanted to give a couple additional trigger warnings and let you know that I'm splitting the episode into two parts due to the length. Feel free to skip these episodes if any of the following triggers are potentially too difficult to listen for you. These episodes contain some discussion of sexual assault, addiction, substance abuse, suicidal thoughts, and self-harm. Thanks for listening to this extra long intro, and now on to the show. Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. Hey there, friends of failure. This is Ben Currier, world's number one failure, and I'm here this week with Dave O'Dwyer. Dave, how are you? I am well. Thank you so much, Ben, for for having me on your podcast. No problem whatsoever. And then apparently this is your first ever podcast guest or host. Obviously, you're the guest in this situation. How do you like it so far? So far, so good. Uh, it has been great to connect with you through Clubhouse and to have this opportunity um, to get into the podcasting kind of space and game um, has been uh, a nice, interesting journey. Um, as you know, I had just hopped into a clubhouse room and uh, they were giving away a prize. I didn't know what the prize was. And then finding out it was a prize to win a workshop to do a podcast, to become a podcaster. So I started learning about podcasting and got to meet you and and i'm so grateful to be here yeah i'm happy to have you i think literally it was probably an hour long call that we were on you just happened to pop in the last possible second 
and got it added in, which is great because uh, you were the one who needed it. You were looking to start out a podcast, but you didn't know where to go. And they kind of, it fell on your lap. And now I think you are pursuing your own podcast, I believe, right? I am. I'm uh, actually even taking some of my old um, uh, footage and old things that I've done in the past because I'd like to do uh, Instagram lives. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at the spiritual gentleman. Um, that is uh, kind of how I got into this was uh, my brand and business is I help uh, ADHD professionals uh, to help overcome and help them execute without necessarily medication to have a better healthy lifestyle through mindfulness practices, um, laughter yoga, and through healthy eating. So not necessarily relying just on medication, but giving you a full totality of the package so that you actually live a full lifestyle using your ADHD to work with you versus against you. You can find out more at my uh, my website called thespiritualgentleman.com. Well, that's very cool. So if I was going to give you a chance right now, before we get into any of the failures that you might have had along the way, first of all, I do have ADHD, so I get that that is an important thing to do, but it also sounds like a tough challenge to wrangle up a bunch of like-minded people in terms of like-minded, meaning distra- easily distractible and all the other things that might group us together. Is there any sort of, whether it's um, through your work, you know, in the comedy scene or in the improv scene, impression scene, whatever scene you want to you know, glob onto? Uh, is there any kind of a shameless brag or shameless self-promotion you want to make in terms of like the, the, the things you've done, maybe the amount of people you've reached or, or what it's been like for you, uh, like exploring this whole comedy side of things? Yeah, for the, for the comedy, just particularly in my life uh, in general. So I've been a, a chef for most of my life. And we'll get a little bit more into that, particularly about how I successfully failed through most of my schooling career. Um, and it's actually, you'll be finding out a bit more of that in a book I'll be releasing, hopefully by December. But like asking an ADHD guy to write a book <laughs> is pretty distracting. But I do have a book It's called uh, that's coming out hopefully in December or by February at the very latest. It's called Adventures of a Skinny Chef. Um uh, tale, the recipes and tales from a traveling chef. So most people think chefs are fat guys. I have been a skinny guy my whole entire life because a good chef is someone who can make the food, not necessarily needs to eat all the food. So, yep, not everybody has the self control you do, I, I think. And uh, you've been able to uh, to be close, but not uh, get sucked into it. I guess. Yeah, that and also too is also if when you're working. Eight, eight to like 10 to 12 hours a day and you're around food all the time, you're t- constantly tasting, you're moving back and forth. You are in a high pressure environment, which is actually great for ADHD in the sense that you're able to be able to stay focused in presence. But when you get down to sit down to eat a meal, you don't actually chance to eat a meal. Um, chefs don't get lunch breaks. We don't get dinner breaks. We get five minutes to maybe smoke a cigarette, a 30 seconds to in, in break between shifts usually have a lot of work to do to get done. It's usually a small team um, to execute very quickly on everything. So everyone thinks that, oh, these chefs must be these big guys with a lot of time. No, you are. I actually, I thought it'd be a great idea to start a, um, a weight loss program, but it would be a restaurant. So we just get a bunch of people. All right, you get in the morning, we're going to do, we're going to lift the potatoes up and down. Like, all right, lift the pots up and down. You're going to be around food by the end of the day. You're sick of seeing it. You don't want to, you know, you're just like, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't get myself to work out. I don't know if you've got any tips for people who are struggling to even get started. I don't know what you're like, if I came to you and I said, literally, I don't know the first thing 
would you say, hey, I don't either? <laughs> or, or do you have some insight? I, I do actually have, I have a few tips and strategies. So first off, and this just works for me personally, right? For working out or any kind of, in that particular realm, particularly for someone with ADHD, and I think just with people in general, I try to use my ego to my advantage, not my disadvantage. So when I know I sign up for a class or an activity um, that I'm going to be doing on a weekly basis, and I make a friend there, then that friend's kind of like, hey, man, where are you, right? So you create that accountability. But to be able to go to a, a workout or to do a workout on my own, I don't push myself as hard, right? Like, I'm like, okay, oh, hey, I did three. Yay, I'm done. But I know I could do 10, right? Like, it's, but if I know if I got someone there, I'd be like, oh, man, you did three. Come on, do five more. All right. Like, I try yeah. to use that to my advantage of like, okay, this person's expecting me to show up. So I don't want to let them down. I don't want to look like an idiot. So I'm going to show up there. So I try to use my ego, I use my ego, to, I hack my ego so I can use it for my advantage versus my disadvantage. And even within, um, during the pandemic, uh, during the lockdown, I ended up joining a coaching program called Chef Fit. Um, unfortunately, the uh, guy Cam ended up shutting down the program uh, just because it was it was hard to find kind of people for it. But he created a whole program that even though you worked out on your own, you posted your results online. He had a very, he built a community. And I think for, especially when we're talking about working out and especially for men in particular, having that sense of community, we're so easily to isolate ourselves, particularly in this day and age, that finding community is the best way for me to work out and continue to do it. And then developing those daily habits of like getting up and doing the same thing over and over again. So I developed those kind of things I'm like, all right, I do it. If I don't do it, don't beat myself up on it, but try to get back on the horse the next day. Is there any book that you've read that helps you along that path? I know I personally benefited from Atomic Habits. We just bought the journal or whatever that I've yet to put any words into at the moment, but I, I expected to do wonders for at least a couple of my bad habits. Um, is there any books that you uh, would recommend? For habits, not like, I guess one of the books that kind of not necessarily helped with habits, but just kind of with mindsets was the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss was, was definitely one that really kind of helped me recognize, like brought into mind the time for money concept of like, mm -hmm. all right, why am I working 40 to 80 hours a week for, and the problem with most chef positions, um, of noticing, particularly from living in different parts of the United States and different parts in Europe that, I, I topped out, right? Like, I'm not going to become a Gordon Ramsay chef. I'm not going to be Mr. Like, uh, you know, I'm not going to be the celebrity chef guy making the billions or $80,000, $100,000 a year. I'm your, like, guy in the back of, like, the Denny's running that line kind of dude, right? Like, or your local little restaurant that's, and at a certain point, you top out, and most chefs, particularly in the United States and in Europe, top out apparently about $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 a year. But not even that. I think I topped out the most I made as a chef was $25,000 a year. That's not a lot of money to live on. And I realized as I tried to do a journey to cook my way around the world, um, I got as far as Malta. And I realized that if I try to go further east, the, wage, the wages would not be enough to continue my lifestyle. Even I would have to be working so hard. And if I'm going to another country, I want to be able to work, but I also want to be able to have the experience of living there and not just working for the sake of working. Um, I, I, I'm personally, I'm a fan of experience of like, I want to go, my whole idea six years ago when I left the United States 
um, to go to live initially in Ireland and then to try to cook my way around the world was to understand cuisine, culture, and style by living, by being there, by not just being a tourist and like being in a place for six months or, or, you know, three weeks, but live there for like a year. Understand that, you know, you know, like, you know, Hassan down at the local grocery store, like you get to know him by name. He knows you by name. Like you, you get to the boring everyday life. Cause then for me, you find out the essence of kind of what life is and you recognize that we are all not that different. Like when it comes down to it, the, the basic day-to-day things, uh, then you start to embrace that, right? And then you have this liveness of like, what am I doing today? Because this is the only moment we have. Like this was, I was so excited to be a part of this, man. This has just been fantastic. Like, cause it, it's, it brings aliveness to this moment. Absolutely. It's crazy. Cause even whatever, let's just say 10 years, just to be safe. There's no chance we would be doing this. Like the, the, power of both all of the work from home type stuff but then in addition to that even the pandemic happening really shifted a lot of stuff to online quicker than most people were ready for it so i think in overall in terms of like remote work style and uh people being able to take back some of their own time and you know pursue some of their own passions definitely has increased over this time despite it being a very challenging time especially like you you wanted to travel around and do something <laughs> in public uh, with a lot of people that's uh, that certainly put a wrinkle in your plans i'm sure so how long you said six years ago is when you moved to ireland when did you set decide to do that traveling chef thing so that was something that's always been a bit, very big part of, of my life so my my parents um so my grandfather was originally from ireland he was originally from castletown bear and in 1923 um i believe yeah 1923 his uncle his parents, so my great grandparents had already died um, during the Irish Revolution. My uh, his uncle, my grandfather's uncle, was a priest in Detroit and was like, "Okay, you and your three brothers, I can send you either to America or England, but I need to get you out of Ireland. Revolution's going on. We need to get you out of the country." So, because he moved over to the United, so my grandfather moved over to the United States. Met my grandmother, worked on the Hoover Dam. Yeah, so he ended up like. Uh, uh, he ended up actually passing away when, when my father was only about 19 years old. So I actually never got to, to meet uh, my grandfather. But because of him, the Irish law allows um, the grandchildren to become citizens. So my uncle had gotten his citizenship. Um, a couple of my cousins had, my dad had, my brother had. So when I was living in Chicago, I ended up applying for it. And I always knew I wanted to travel overseas. It was something my we grew up traveling. My dad worked for Alaska Airlines for over 25 years. So traveling was always a big kind of, it's a big part of kind of who I am and part of my family. Like my older brother currently lives in Singapore. My sister is moving to Toronto with her boyfriend. So like, and I live in Ireland and my parents can't be more excited. The fact that all their children are out of the United States. <laughs> most people, most, most parents want their kids close at home. Mine at 18 were like, here's luggage and you've got three months of free rent. Then we charge you. So <laughs> get out. But, but what came around um, going to almost, I'll even relate this into my first story about failure. So when I, uh, so when I initially wanted to move to Ireland, that was about, I was 28, 29 at the time. Um, I was living in Chicago and I was, uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic um, as well. And I was a big, heavy drinker being a chef in that kind of field. 
like I idolize Anthony Bourdain probably too much of like, if you've read Kitchen Confidential, that particularly like the lifestyle that he kind of lays out there. When I read it at 18, I'm like, oh yeah, that's going to be me, but I'm going to like not be so heavy into the drugs. Yeah, no, I pretty much was. And I, and at that particular time at 29, I was, yeah, I just turned 29. I was working for this uh, company called Mies Meals. Um, basically just had a complete breakdown quit the job, broke up with the girlfriends, kicked the guy out that was living in my apartment and just had a complete meltdown and I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I get this email from a girl I went to high school with and her family owned this um, Middle Eastern restaurant in Seattle and they're looking for a head chef. And they're like, hey, do you know anyone in the Seattle area? I'm like, well, I don't, but like, I need a job. So I'll come out to Seattle. And my idea was I'll go out and live I'll go out and I'll get your restaurant up and running. I'm, I was cocky and arrogant. I think I can like do the job. Be like, all right. Yeah, I can do this. Give you one year. I'll get you up and running. I'm going to try to get in Seattle magazines, top chef under 30, you know, I'll do it in one year. And then after that, I'm going to go move to Ireland. Just to be clear, how long have you been a chef at this point when you uh, sold them the world? At this point, uh, I've been a chef <laughs> since I was like 15 years old. So okay. like at 15, I, I, uh, when I was 15, that's when I found cooking and basically pursued it like ever since. So I imagine you were much better at the chefness than the business side of things, but you sold them the whole package, I imagine. Yeah, no, I sold them the whole package because I, I was the Mies Meals was a startup company that I was kind of running as well. And there was a lot of kind of ego in it. But three weeks before my 30th birthday, um, three months before I initially planned to move to Europe with, I had about two grand on me saved at that point. Um, I went into my old apartment that I had sub been subleasing from a friend of mine thinking I still lived there and was found passed out in the kitchen with, uh, with the freezer door open. Apparently I was looking for the vodka that I normally kept in the freezer with a lady waking up saying, who the fuck are you? And as I woke up, according to the police report, I tried to open the door and as I opened the door, I knocked myself out and I woke up in handcuffs. Okay. Can you repeat the last part? Because I loved it. <laughs> I just wanted you to have to say it again. <laughs> yeah. So I, <laughs> I I do even do this as a, as a comedy joke, but this is like one of these kind of like moments of epic kind of failure of like rock bottomness of where I had been basically blacked out once my old apartment that I hadn't lived in three months, found passed out in the kitchen, freezer door open lady screams, who the fuck are you? And I wake up not knowing where I'm at, like complete days, go to grab the door to leave. As I run forward, opening the door, I run forward and I knock myself out. Wake up in handcuffs. Family doesn't know where I'm at. Jobs like calling my my family, don't know what's going on. My sister, she worked for the courts, the King County court system. So she was able to track me down. Dad flies up from Arizona. They're like, on, on the Monday, it's like, you have, uh, you have a visitor. I'm like, no one knows where I'm at. I thought at that particular point, I was like, I'm going to be spending the rest of my life in jail. Yeah. Um, like nothing's like, this is, this is my life is over kind of thing. And my dad was like, you know what? This is your uh, happy 30th birthday. This is your one. I'll hmm. bail you out hmm. this one time. And it took about, it took about six months of like denial before I recognized I needed help. And that there was uh, the alcoholism was just an underlying issue for a lot of my unrepressed un and my inability to deal with my ADHD. And that is, and then it got me myself into recovery, did the 12 step program. And 
I thought initially when I did it was like, all right, I need to avoid jail time. So I thought the best way for a judge that hears lies and bullshit all day long, I'm going to do the thing that they're not expecting. I'm going to tell the truth and be honest. I'm going to go and go of this full force and do it the best of my ability and, you know, take ownership for my, for my shit and, and work through the program. And I had some amazing sponsors and I had a great program that I went through that helped me kind of recognize who I was. And I had to, three months into it, I had to change the identity, the I am of what a chef meant. Because for me, chef meant with that kind of Anthony Bourdain, rock star party lifestyle, because I had a hard time of accepting who I was as a person. It was a, the, the I am's was, was like, I am weak. I am worthless. And that came down to feelings of when, uh, feelings when I was nine years old and put on medication for the first time, it was in the early nineties. And I was the first kid in my private school to be put on medication. And it was this kind of thing of like, oh, you must be dumb. And I, and I used it to my advantage because I wasn't necessarily intelligent in the sense of like being able to write out words or verbate information, but I knew how to take information I had and use it to my advantage. So I got out of doing like 90% of all the writing projects. Um, I ended up actually winning a uh, dare essay contest that my mom, I would talk and my mom typed it out. And my first line in it was, I'm an, uh, I'm an addict and I take drugs. My drug is Ritalin. I'm in a gang. It's called the Boy Scouts. And I made a complete counter argument of like, of like, all right, it's how you, it's how you view things, like make it into what it is. So not necessarily all drugs are bad, not necessarily all gangs are bad. It's how you view things. And so that ended up winning me a, a lunch with the, with the police officer that ran the thing. And I got to sit in the front of the squad car. The only time in my life when I've been in a, in a squad car that I was in the front, most of the time I was always in the back. So, <laughs> Well, you learned your lesson in that sense, because it's better to be yeah, it, a it, guest. <laughs> than an better, un- better to be a guest. Unwilling participant. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh, geez. But it was funny, too, because it was during that same year that I won the contest. I had these two bullies from the public school that would um, come uh, after me, and particularly at this one uh, light near my house. And it led into, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll go into this story because it's, it's a, because this kind of leads into the alcoholism and everything else. It's, 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 a, it's a heavy one. So I had these two bullies that used to pick on me all the time and they would hang out right outside of Grace Lucent Church at this stoplight. There's a big kid and a little kid. I never knew their names. But because I went to a private school, I'd have my uniform on and everything. I'd ride my bike. I'm like, aha, like public, like private school kid. And I was a shy little, I was skinny, a little kid, uh, like very sensitive. Like I'd cry on, on, I I knew that if I cry, I could get away with so many, much, with much more stuff, right? Like I knew how to manipulate adults to get with what I wanted. Uh So it didn't work as well with kids. One, one afternoon, the little kid was on one side of the street and the big kid was nowhere to be seen. And like spider sense went off of like, okay, something's going to go down. I don't know what. Um, So I, as soon as the light turns green, I'm racing on my bike going right across the street. There's a A A-frame house on the other side. As I'm going past the A-frame house, the bigger kid had a two by four in his hand behind the house, slams me off my bike, knocks me straight off. Like well-planned as if it was a movie stunt. Exactly. As if like a movie set kind of thing of like, all right, he had planned this out, was wanting to beat me up. So knocks me off my bike, throws me um, down to the ground, uh, shoves my, like pushes me over, shoves my face into the, the gravel 
and proceeds to try to pull down my pants and he sticks his thumb up my ass. Wow. Um, his little friend was like, like was freaked out as well. I was like, dude, what are you doing? Like we thought we we're just going to beat him up. Right. He didn't, we didn't plan this far. You didn't plan. Yeah, exactly. And so gets him off him. I grab my bike. I immediately go racing home. I don't know what happened. Like it was just this kind of blur of feeling of just like unwantedness of like, I am other, I am worse. I am different. I go, I find my bottle of Ritalin at home mm-hmm. and I take about like a good third of it just down it because I don't want to stop these feelings. I I end up telling my parents kind of what happened. I got bullied, blah, blah, blah. The next day there's, we even went to the police station. Uh, I didn't go into the full details because I didn't fully understood it. I was 12 years old. I didn't fully understood what had happened to me. You didn't know their names even, right? I didn't even know their names. I had no idea. Like this was just, but it was one of these things that set off a traumatic experience from then on from nine to about 15 I had a really dangerous relationship with Ritalin. So when I said in that, like, and it was about three or four weeks later that I wrote that, that piece for the dare, the, for the dare keep kid off drugs to admit that I'm an addict, but not to be able to admit that I had been sexually assaulted by a kid. You know, even now it's only after lots of therapy and a lot of work have been able to be able to talk about this, but it, it shut me down. And from nine to 15, I had this weird relationship with Ritalin of where I'd want it, then not want it, want it, not want it. And then when I found cooking, I, I got into a kitchen and my parents put me in a culinary program. I was part of the Boy Scouts and I always loved food. Um, it allowed me to use my ADHD to its full capacity. I needed to, like, once I needed to have all the noise and all the things around me, this going off, that going off, having three or four th- things to focus on the one. And then life made sense to me. Everything started to click. I understood what things meant. It like, I felt I could succeed in life. I, it gave me in this idea of chef of like, okay, chef, that I must be a chef. And this, this must be the way how I'm going to move forward. And like, even to the point of where I was still going to a private high school that my junior, senior year, I ended up going to a private school and also a public school that the public school offered was called Occupational Skills Center. Um, and they had a, they were basically, it was a, trade school for high school students to learn different trades like culinary arts, hairdressing, graphic design, dentistry, things like that. My sister had done a pro had done it. So that's how we known about it. And I ended up doing it for uh, my junior, senior year, getting really involved in it. And that was the first time I ever received A's at all in my life um, for any kind of schooling. I took over my senior year. I took over the breakfast program fully. And that was, that was a deal I worked out. Meaning for the school? cooking yeah for the school so they had a breakfast they had a they had a working kitchen a working restaurant my dad and I used to go there for breakfast during my first two years of high school from time to time when he'd give me lifts to school so we got to know them really well but even during my junior year there I ended up actually getting kicked out about three weeks left in school this was uh I had gotten into the rave scene. So this would have been, this would have been the uh, year about like 1999, 2000. I got really big into the rave scene uh, because the kids at the culinary school there, they, they knew I had a car. So they would like use me for like <laughs> lifts, lifts to the lifts to the rave. And the first rave I went to, I didn't really like it until a girl in a paint and a, and a green dinosaur outfit made out with me. And I was like, all right, this is awesome. I want to go back. Cause if a girl will make out with me at that point, I was so shy around girls and like, <laughs> and all that. If I had anything like that, I was like, okay. But I ended up getting into drugs again, pretty heavily with ecstasy. 
and it was on a Monday or something. I can't remember what day they had put me in charge of all the special need kids, uh, which I hated because I was technically a special needs kid. Cause I had, I was on ADHD. Yeah. You know, I was, I was a riddling kid. Um, but they, uh, and it was just, it was like, but I don't want to be one of these special ed kids anymore. I'm too skilled to anything, but they're like, no, we want you there because you're actually very good. You, you're kind of in charge of them. When there's extra work, we know you can like pick up the slack and do it. Yeah. And I had just a tough day. And I told my teacher, Mr. Richter, it's like, hey, you know what? I'm not sure if I can do it today. I'm just, can I work on my portfolio? I'm just not mentally ready. I, I, I had enough sense to know like, hey, I need to take myself out of a situation. Mm-hmm. Half hour when class is almost over, 15 minutes or half hour. I can't remember what it was. He comes into the office. He's like, oh, hey. Uh, these 35 box lunches didn't get made. I needed to make it right now. And I completely flipped out on him. I was like, dude, I told you I can't handle it. I'm not mentally stable to be around knives or anything else. He took it as a threat. So that went to then uh, the principals of the culinary school, which then had to talk to the private school. Up to that point, they never talked to each other. So I was the, I was the lead. So I skipped a lot of my private school because I could get slips that said we had a project or something else going on. And I had no interest. I had no interest in my regular school. It was the, the, the hyper focus was on cooking. So if it had nothing to do with cooking, I didn't give a fuck about like regular school. Yeah. So the regular, like, so they called my counselor and everyone, like basically everything kind of came due and the school, both schools told me the exact same thing. We love you. We think you're an excellent student. You have a passion, but you have mental issues. You need to go get some help. Mm-hmm. Later that summer, I worked for a Boy Scout camp. Before you, before you fast forward, how'd you take that news? Um, I, I took it. I took it pretty harshly. It was. It was. It was. It was tough to kind of hear. I didn't kind of believe them. I was like, uh, and I was more of like, all right, how do I get out of this, and how do I manipulate this to work to my advantage? Okay, so I was able to still get grades in my culinary school because the principal, the vice principals loved me from doing all the extra work. Mm-hmm. So I was able to like, all right, if I do this, will I, can I get, can I still get my grades? Yes, because I was like more concerned about graduating. Like, all right, I don't want them to fuck this up for my graduation. Yeah. So I went to all my teachers and I was like, and I just went to them like, honestly, like you need to talk to your teachers for your, my private school to see what, what they're willing to do for you to to pass. So it was like my English teacher, a religion teacher and a history teacher. So for the history teacher, I was like, all right, look, you, you know, I want to be a chef. Like, all right, we're studying about 1920s. So if I, I found, a, if I found a recipe from the 1920s and I make you a meal based on that recipe and do a little history on this dish, will you like, let me pass? Yes. Okay. English, uh, like dealing and dealing your way through. Yeah. Yeah. So I negotiated my way through it. Like I was through academia. <laughs> I was very much in a point of like how, learning how to negotiate of like, all right, your system doesn't work for me. So how can I make your system and my system work together? So I get what I want out of it. So he, like the English teacher, I, I, I think I made her like something that she liked and I was able to pass that class too. Like I basically just conned my teachers of like, all right, like, look, you know what I want to do. So I was like, all right, here's a menu, some menus I've written that kind of fit into requirements. Here's like, what can I do that involves cooking to allow me to pass your class? So that's awesome. And so did you eventually graduate with a culinary degree? Yeah, I eventually graduated high school with a two year, two year culinary like certificate. Mm -hmm. 
I never know if I like technically like they they said they passed me, but like I've never actually seen an actual diploma, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. <laughs> but, but but like when you get later in life, that shit doesn't really matter as much. Yeah, I'm still paying off my master's degree, and I don't know if anyone's ever checked if I even went there. Who knows? I don't know how much I know they they check more with your former employees, but when it comes to like your schooling and stuff. I can't imagine they're fact checking all of it, but I do have a master's. So, I mean, you know, it cost a lot of money, took a lot of time, but I don't know if it was necessary, but certainly I didn't learn what I needed to learn in school. Uh, Most of it was on the job site, similar to what you're saying, like you'd, you know, whether it's uh, chefs passing tricks down from one to another uh, or, um, you know, white collar jobs and people handing down spreadsheets over time. It was more of like a, you didn't know what you're doing kind of thing until you saw how other people were doing it and then mimicked that rather than being properly trained for what you're going to actually, what your daily life would be like. So I'm not sure if any of that culinary, culinary school preparation took into account a lot of the just hecticness of what would be going on in a kitchen and, uh, and focused on that or not. For, for a high school program, it did because they operated a lunch, uh, a breakfast and lunch program. It was open to the public. So that was, it was a nice experience. And that was the only, that was the only high school full like accreditation of my culinary degree or like maybe even degree because it was a high school level uh, course. Yeah. I ended up going to Johnson and Wales University for about a year, a year and a half or so. And as just as you described, I realized I'm okay. I, why am I spending all this money mm-hmm. um, to, at that point, I was already pretty cocky. So I'm like, all right, I have two years of a culinary experience from working, from going to doing it for in high school. And then I took a year off before going to college, um, before going to Johnson and Wales. That's a whole nother kind of story. I lived in Chicago for about three months, failed out of a job there that I got hired just off the street with this dude yelling at me. It's one of the stories in my book, but like, it was just one of these things that where like, by the time I got into college, I recognized that, okay, why get paid? Why pay someone to learn something when I could go learn it on the job and figure out the practical skills and get paid. Uh, I, yeah, I paid for, I only did a year and then I, I dropped out. So I consider myself a successful college dropout. I don't know if I successfully actually graduated from my grade school or my high school or my college. I successfully failed through everything. I continued to fail upwards. You negotiated your way through, it sounds like. Yeah. And then you I, were like, well, why would I do this? Why would I do the normal thing when I already did a multiple versions of the weird way to go through it, it sounds like. Exactly. It makes for a better story, too. Like, I wrote, like... Everyone else was just like, all right, we're going to follow like the plan. I'm like, you know what? That's not me. I'm going to go my own way, figure out what works best for me and kind of just like, oh, to everyone else. And it's not in a negative way, but in a way that's like, I have to find out what best works for me. And through that, like this goes us back to that moment three months after I got sober of recognizing I had to come to grips with the internal I am's because wherever you go, there you are. And this, this idea that I thought I was a failure, a less than broken human being mm-hmm. was incorrect. I was a sick person. I was someone who didn't know how to love themselves, who was incapable for very, very big part of from about 12 to, you know, I'd almost instead of say 30 hated to be touched. I hated to be touched. In certain situations now, I still, when I'm really emotionally, like really kind of in a state, I hate to anyone to touch me whatsoever. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I relate it back to that bully there of that feeling of that that just washes over me of like, stay away because I like that those emotions need to let them run their course. Mm-hmm. I always thought that once I had that emotion, I'm going to be having that emotion for the rest of my life and I'm going to be stuck in that mode. I know now emotions, uh, one of my favorite phrases, emotions are like children. You can't stuff them in the in the trunk, nor can you let them drive the car. They belong in the back seat. And, you know, your emotions, when I let my emotions control me, I, I, I crash into things. If I bury them down, they just, it doesn't serve me. And then it just ends up going like sideways anyway. Like they're a part of who you are, but they're not the full part. They're just one aspect of the many aspects that make a you, you. And it took a long time um, to kind of get there. Sorry, this is like a long windy stories and stuff. I hope you don't like. I don't mind at all. That's how my brain works too. But I, I agree, or at least I, I can identify with you on a couple things there. Have you ever taken the um the five love languages test or anyone like that? Did Do you know roughly where it shook out? Yeah, so uh, I am acts of service. Okay. Um, acts of service and... Um, like time spent together. My girlfriend and I, we did the love languages. She's, um, she loves notes, like uh, words of aff- affirmation. And she also has acts of service as well. So. Oh, that's good. Cause when you, cause what I've noticed is that I'm on, I'm on the same side of the physical touch as you where, I mean, it's confusing to people when they see that. So like, for example, I originally took it, I was 10% physical touch, 33% acts of service was my highest. I took it again yesterday just to see where I'm at. And now I'm at 7% physical touch. So it's not like, it's usually like given one or the other, I'm going to pick the one that's not physical touch. Cause to me, that's when it comes to when I'm in a spot where I don't feel loved, someone hugging me or physically comforting me doesn't bring me comfort or love. It's just not how it comes across. It comes more across as like controlling or whatever. I, who knows? it comes across as icky. You're like, like, look right now, I'm not like, especially when you're in like a high emotional state, you're like, all right, yeah, I, I need to process this first. What I've learned to develop of what I think it means to be a man. And I break man down into how to be a man is a man is honest, open, and willing, and he is mature, assertive, and nurturing. So, and, and learning how that, all right. And my maturity means that a man who is mature is someone who takes care of their physical, mental, and spiritual needs. So there is someone who knows how to take care of themselves, put themselves together. An assertive man is an aggressive man. An assertive man is someone who can stand up for his beliefs, his boundaries, and he doesn't allow people to push him over because I'm a people pleaser. I, I recognize this in a lot of my things. I'm a people pleaser. I want to like, I've been in the service industry. I was a boy scout for 18 years. Like, like service has been a big through. I'm now moving into coaching because service is one of those kind of one of those self-identifiers, those I am, I am, I am a man of service. And, and then uh, nurturing is recognizing that to love, to know how to nurture and take care of others, to be, you don't have to be cold. You can actually, your emotions are a negative thing. Your emotions are an indicator of the outside stimuli of what's going on there. They are part of that gut feeling and instinct. They're not to be ignored. Mm -hmm. They're not to be in control, but they're an indication like any other thing that you have, like when you feel a rumble in your tummy, right? Like, oh, I'm hungry. Before I got into ADHD coaching in particular with Mm -hmm. men, I was working, I was a dating coach um, because I got a dating coach when I first moved over to Ireland. 
because I thought the issue with me not being able to get a date after being sober for a year and a half, because the only time any other time I could talk to a woman was like, I'd have to be drunk off my ass. So now that I'm sober, how do I get a date? So I thought it was all the girls in Seattle must be the issue. So the I told everyone I was moving uh, overseas because I wanted to cook my way around the world secretly. I just wanted to get laid. And I thought if I go, I am charming enough. I have people skills. I go over to a foreign country. They're like, oh, my God, you're an American. <laughs> yeah, you went with the hopefully like I'll figure it out. There's plenty of women in the world. I'll just work my way around and see where where I can figure it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See where see where I landed. And then I realized after about two weeks of being in Ireland, I, I came to the realization that the issue was not. American women, Irish women, Egyptian women, or any women at all, the issue was me. And there was my inability to love myself and handle my own emotions. So that set me on a journey of, I hired a dating coach and got into the PUA. I don't know if you've heard of like the pickup artist yep. kind of stuff. What was that guy's name with the feather hat? He was on a mystery. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then my, my brother had given me the book, The Game by Neil Strauss um, years earlier that I absolutely loved that book. And I was like, oh, I got to figure out all these things. And, you know, through like, and what I ended up learning from this Darren guy, who is this Irish guy, he learned, he taught me how to go up to people and talk to them, like in the middle of the street. I was already pretty comfortable with talking to strangers because I'm just a pretty social person, but learn how to like, I'm a man, you're a woman. Would you like to go on a date? And it was just as simple as like, here I am. This is who I am. Get to the know faster. Recognize that it's kind of a bit of a numbers game for a man in the sense of like, you need to get the practice of learning rejection. You need to get the practice of hearing no. How to like recognize what and find your genuine self so you get comfortable enough to be able to hold the space. So that led me into learning about more about dance, learning about body language skills, learning about subtle communication uh, skills, learning how to communicate with women, understanding that women are sexual beings. Like one of my favorite books that I read was a book called My Secret Garden by Nancy Friday, written by a feminist in the 1970s about women's sexual dreams and their fantasies. And that's, and it breaks kind of down of how women are viewed in society and everything else. But it was such an eye-opening book to be able to understand women, to have relationships that were honest, open and full and loving and caring from a place of where I can kind of be in that kind of space. It's just, there's a lot of dating coaches kind of out there. And I, I don't necessarily want to be like, here's the 10 ways to go pick up women and the 10 best pickup lines. Like I, I'm, I come from the, the, the belief of like, when you learn how to be your authentic self and learn how to love yourself first, then the, the matches will come to you because you'll eventually start going to those places, doing those activities. The women will be naturally attracted to you. Like how I met my current girlfriend, we were, I was teaching a laughter yoga course at this place called the Clockwork Door in Dublin. It was an event space. And she was doing a vinyl, paint on vinyl uh, class afterwards. So it would be my class and then her class. Sometimes my class would go long. So she'd always get angry at me for like going along on my class. So I'd always just help her like set up the table or like set up like the room afterwards. And we ended up chatting and uh, exchanged classes and went out on a date and just have been together ever since. And that's been about almost two and a half years now. Congratulations. You went the, the very stereotypical path of laughter meditation and 
writing things on vinyl, painting things on vinyl. Yeah. Uh, that's usually a good combo. Everyone, <laughs> I've never heard of either one as really a, a way to uh, live a life. So the fact that you both um, were able to connect in that way is is pretty awesome. Yeah, we're both kind of alternative, very spiritual kind of people. Um, not necessarily religious, but in the sense of like a lot of inner work and a lot of development on that. So we found connection points that we could really kind of connect over. So it's led a lot to that kind of like, it's just kind of funny how it fell together. And it tells a great story too. One of the things I always, when I t- was teaching guys, anytime I teach guys about like relationships is like, think about this, like going to meeting on a nap, everyone meets on a nap, everyone meets at a bar. But if you can go up to a woman in the middle of the street and be like, Hey, I saw you from over there. I thought you had like, I noticed your earrings. They're really pretty. My name's Dave. How are you? It's simple, right? But like you, that, that woman will now go tell her friends like, oh my God, this guy came out of nowhere. I was having this, such a shitty day. He noticed my earrings that I put on and, you know, made me feel special. That's a story that goes on of being told, right? And I've always tried to create stories in my life of like, all right, these are just chapters and stories. Uh, I recognize I'm not the author necessarily the full I'm a co-author of my story. I'm not the author. I am just a character in this grand story called life. And if I think about it from like a good book, you get your you get your moments of foreshadowing of little hints that gets dropped your way that then lead into, you know, beautiful kind of stories. It's absolutely. I mean, this is why we're having this conversation now, right? Like, like the whole the whole story that comes about that makes it like a fun and exciting thing. That's so cool. I like what you're saying because I'm like a serial monogamist or whatever you want to call it, where I'll jump from relationship to relationship and I need that external validation kind of like you. So if I'm not in a relationship, I feel like I, you know, don't have as much worth as if I'm in one. And if honestly, I could spend as much time wanting to chase business dreams or career dreams as I did chasing women, because women would get infinite time allocation, uh, (laughs) everything else you know, who knows where it fit into the schedule. But I like what you're saying about um, nowadays with how everything's in dating app land, the in real life connection version is the the cheat code basically to get past a lot of the dating these days because uh, a lot of guys aren't having to face those kind of fears. And so they don't do it in public. Not that they should be catcalling from the construction site like we think about some some men acting, but more like uh, just having a genuine conversation at a bookstore or whatever it is. A lot of people these days will not do that, uh, that version of it. Just that fear. Cause there's so many, like you hear from women, Oh, there's like, I can't find any nice guys out there because these nice guys are, are in fear, right? There's, there's a lot of fear, fear of rejection and um, fear is fear is the mind killer and fear will stop people from doing anything. And that's also failure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I love that the, the, the fact this podcast is called, you know, the failure guy for me, I heard this, um, uh, phrase about fail fail is just a first attempt in learning the full, I'm trying to remember the full phrase. So it comes from an Indian, uh, prime minister, but he breaks down a fail. It's just, it's the first attempt in learning. So if you fail, that's just your first attempt in learning something. So go do it again. And no just means next opportunity. Uh, I'll find the speech on it, but it's a really fascinating speech of how he kind of breaks down for just that positivity kind of look at it. Like, oh my God, just because she said no, she could say no for thousands of reasons. And 99.9% of them probably have nothing to do with you, mm-hmm. right? Like a lot of it's projection, a lot of it, hey, they may actually have a boyfriend. You know, they didn't feel the vibe in the, the first five seconds. I've had women that I've met on the street who I've still been friends with after we've gone on a few dates. And have told me that one of the best stories is like, 
having you come up to me on the street and like pay that compliment. Like when I, I challenge just any random person, I've done this for, for a week, pay three random compliments to three random strangers and ask them to do the same, a genuine random compliment. Cause all you're doing there is you're paying a genuine honest to God thing of like, well, if I see someone in a cool hat, I'm like, dude, cool outfit or awesome tattoo. Mm-hmm. What's I going to do? Like, I have not met a single person yet. Who's been like, Oh my God. They've been like, are you trying to sell me something? Like, no, I'm just want to let you know. I thought it was really cool. And you can make people's day. You can save lives by just being, having that, holding the door open for someone. You know, it's a simple kind of thing. This is why I call myself the spiritual gentleman is that I want to bring a divine and spiritual masculinity into the, the 21st century. I think men need that. Men need the community. Men need, men need that. It's, I don't know how to go about it because I'm failing at like how to be an entrepreneur, failing at how to do all of this stuff because it's completely brand new to me because I'm used to being the guy in the kitchen who I can make you a great souffle. I can make you a great steak dinner. I can do all that kind of stuff in a kitchen setting. Put me in front of a computer to now market and teach guys these skills as brand new. Like, oh, I want to help the ADHD community. And I got like, when I first got into like, okay, I want to really help ADHD guys really kind of help them to to live their fullest life. Cause I'm part of this group called ADHD men's support group on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I just see a lot of guys suffering and a lot of guys struggling with, uh, with thinking that their ADHD is the center of their life. And it's just like, like our emotions, it's just one aspect of who we are. It's, I, I like to consider myself, I'm version two, I'm a human 2.3 version. You know, I'm still upgrading. I'm still like, you know, like I'm not, I'm not done, right? Like we're just a different version. I'm not better than or worse than anyone else. I'm just version 2.3, you know, you're Ben version 2.6, right? Like it's, you know, everyone is we're just our latest builds. Yeah. Ex- no matter what. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's finding that way to help men and bring out that message of like positivity and like that they're not alone. Cause I think there's a lot of men that suffer with mental illness, a lot of men that suffer and they suffer in silence. Um, they suffer in relationships and I've caught myself in my own relationship recently. And I've had to kind of call myself out and I'm like, okay, if I was coaching a guy, what would I do? What would I like? All right. And we've had, and the lovely thing about my, my partner is that we've had conversations about it. And, and I know I can be honest with where I'm at. I also know I need to choose my words carefully. I also need to know that it's not what you say, it's how you say things. Oh man, that's my worst problem. Yep. Cause I'm focused on the words and my, it comes out like absolute ass. Yeah. And or come off, it'll come off as cold. I don't know if you get this whenever it comes off, like, yeah, you're too cold and calculating because I'm a man, I'm logical in the, in how I think about things of A to B to C uh, you know, women's brains are are wired differently where it comes out A to, a to G, back to C, then to M, to Z, to four, to six. And it all makes sense. And you're like, huh? Was- <laughs> yeah. I struggle just to follow along with the story sometimes. I think it's, it's interesting that you t- talk about masculinity and how that's defined. Cause I know myself, I've personally, I joke that I'm whatever the opposite of a handyman is. I don't know if that's a footy man or whatever the thing is, but like, I can't fix cars i can't do any of that stuff and a lot of that i still can't do but at least i think it's possible for me to learn how to do it for a long time i thought i was just incapable of picking up a lot of the quote-unquote manly traits so i was like oh i'll just get really good at business or whatever and then i'll pay someone to do all of those things because i don't want to have to learn them but really it was just whenever i was bumping up against masculine things and i was feeling like i couldn't do it it would just make me feel like 
you know, either less of a man, less confident in my abilities or whatever it is. So I'd kind of just avoid those things. Now, in this point in my life, I'm so I'm 36 years old. I'm trying to do more things outside of my comfort zone in terms of those skills. I hate my car, my manual car that I can barely drive, which I had mentioned to you before the the interview started. But at least even the concept of driving one of those kind of cars to me was too manly for me to even approach. So um, I was just happy to to like get past some of those things and figure out how cars worked in general, just a little bit, just dabble in it. Because a lot of times I would just put up my shields and be like, no, I, I can't fit into that box. There's too much manliness wrapped into it. So I think that's why I also gave up on sports and some other yeah. things. Because um, like you, I've struggled with addiction, not only in substance form, but also like, you know, gambling and other things that it's, it's funny how you can get addicted to things just for the dopamine rush, but not because they're necessarily physically addicting in the typical sense of what people think, like, you know, you're taking a drug, but now you're just living a living out the highs of life. And that's the drug is, for example, I loved uh, Texas Hold'em poker. So like just the, the amount of skill involves with luck as well, you know, it's, it's a nice pairing and I could play that for like eight to 10 to 12, 14 hours in a row but I can't do an eight hour job usually, you know, for the corporation I'm working for. So it's like, well, what's my problem? Why can I motivate myself to play video games for hours on end, but I can't figure out how to uh, motivate myself to do certain things. And I think kind of like you were saying, but the opposite. So um, you worked in a high stress environment where there's a lot of stuff going on all the time. I picked accounting as my degree. And like, if you ask a stand up comedian to pick a boring career to use in a bit they'd probably pick an accountant so it's like uh the safest bet in terms of like what it was i didn't know what it was and i picked it i just knew every company needed an accountant so i was like well that's good job security so i'll just do this and then i realized i hated accounting like after i graduated with a degree in it and then i went and got an mba with a concentration in accounting because uh, i didn't know what it was i just thought they don't teach you how any of it connects they just teach you the little bits and pieces and then you're like, oh, like after getting fired from a few jobs and realizing I hate accounting, I'm like, oh, well, first of all, now I know what accounting is. And two, I know I hate it. So I might as well do something I like, but I didn't want to like totally disregard the fact that I had so much business training. So I started doing the forward looking projections and stuff because that I can't tell you how to go sell enough of the product or whatever it is. But if we get these things going, you know, and once it's in an Excel spreadsheet and looks all well put together people forget that it's something they have to actually do in the real world i'm like hey everybody i made this i don't i don't control what you do so you gotta go sell this and you gotta spend less money or whatever the thing is you gotta like make this a reality because i didn't make this a reality i just said this is a could be <laughs> yeah it, it's it's perception right because it's just like you because like, numbers on a on a spreadsheet right like it'll look entertaining it'll be like okay Oh, so this must like, uh, I was um, watching the recent um, John Oliver and he was talking about misinformation, uh, particularly in like Indian communities and other like uh, communities around the world that use WhatsApp and everything else. And he was like, uh, he shared like a TikTok of like a dude, like making like an infographic to put out there that ended up getting spread around. That's just complete fake. But if you look, make it look like enough of a thing, people will believe it, right? Like it's, you know, like perception is reality. And I loved too, when you said the word, especially because I recognize in that masculinity thing too, the word can't, like can't is such a word of where 
like we had our, our toilet fixed down. Uh, our downstairs toilet was broken and we had a guy come out to fix it. I was like, oh yeah, it's a capacitor and this. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, you know what? I These are skills that are outside my level, but I can learn, right? Like as soon as I say I- Could be a flux capacitor for all I know, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, okay, cool. It's a sandy flow thing because it's got a smaller thing. So it's got to be like a disposable for the toilet. Like mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, dude, my landlord's paying you the money. Let me know what you need from me. Yeah. Good on you. And it's those things of thinking that you're less than like, no, you know what? I like- I can do things that other guys can't do. They can do things that I can't do. And it's this comparison trap that we say of like, what makes, what makes working on a car more masculine than making a dish or painting? uh, Like who's, who's created this, this, this list of like, this falls into feminine, this falls into masculine, right? Like I like, it was what last year, the Harry Styles thing, he's like in a dress and like, it was like a, a Vogue and everyone's like getting up in arms about it. And it's like, Dude, dude, look good, man. Like, he looks fabulous. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode, and feel free to continue with part two once it's released. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time. Would you like to be more efficient, productive, and confident in your work at the office? Over 750 million people worldwide use Excel, yet it's still a misunderstood and frequently misused tool. That's why I created Excel Exposure, so you can work smarter and not harder. The Excel Essentials course gives you over 5 hours of in-depth video lessons, plus it comes along with my master workbook which has every function, shortcut, and all the examples to follow along. Investopedia actually included my course in their list of six best online Excel classes of 2021, saying it's best for visual learners. As someone who's an expert in failure, I can certainly teach you and your team how to avoid spreadsheet failures and create bulletproof Excel documents. Use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access price. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and also my existing award-winning free training.